welcome to the FretDojo.com podcast with your host, Greg O'Rourke, founder of Fret Dojo and world leader of online jazz guitar education. Visit FretDojo.com for free jazz guitar lessons, tips and a whole lot more. Hello everyone, welcome to FretDojo.com, the website which is all about helping you become a better jazz guitar player. And I'm very excited today because, and very humbled actually, as I have the great pleasure to welcome to Fret Dojo the um, fabulous jazz guitarist Howard Alden. Uh, Howard is probably one of the most well-known jazz guitarists of our times and um, yeah, I, I was thrilled when he agreed to come on to have a bit of a chat to me today about jazz guitar playing and uh, and how to improve your playing and, and also some of the things that have been highlights of his career and the the kind of styles he specializes in and so forth. So, uh, Howard, it's a great pleasure to welcome you to Fret Dojo. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. It's nice to be here and nice to talk to you. Yeah, so uh, a, a bit of a background about Howard. Uh, he studied at the Guitar Institute of Technology from 1977 to 1978 with the likes of Herb Ellis, Joe Pass and Howard Roberts. He had collaborations with Dick Hyman, Dan Barrett, and Bucky Pizzarelli, and of course many others. And uh, uh, Howard's probably most well known for the guitar performances he recorded for Sean Penn's character in Woody Allen's 1999 film Sweet and Lowdown. And he actually taught Sean Penn how to mime the performances for the film. I thought that was pretty cool when I, when, when I read that the other day. And uh, he's recorded many albums with Concord Records uh, men, and many other labels as well, including four albums with the famous seven-string jazz guitar innovator George Van Epps. And uh, Howard's been the recipient of many awards, including Best Emerging Guitar Talent, Jazz Times, Guitar Player of the Year from the American Guitar Museum and top 75 guitarists from Downbeat. So uh, jazz critics have said of Howard that he may be the best jazz guitarist of his generation and others have said of him the most impressive and creative member of a new generation of jazz guitarists. So everyone, you can probably tell why I'm a little bit nervous today <laughs> interviewing Howard <laughs> to have someone like this on the show. So um, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm definitely going to take this opportunity to pick your brains, Howard, about uh, everything about jazz guitar playing. I hope you don't mind, man. I don't mind. Please pick away. I hope, I hope you find a couple of bones in there somewhere. <laughs> awesome, man. Cool. So um, yeah, but let's, let's hear from you now, Howard. T tell me a bit about yourself. Um, how did you get started with jazz guitar in the first place? And and then, you know, how did your career unfold after that? Well, it, yeah, it's kind of a, a convoluted story. I was always interested in music. and I was trying to pick out things on the piano as a kid. And speaking of jazz, one of the things that planted the seed was when I was five or six years old, I found some 45 RPM records and I had a little record player that someone had left in the house. And a couple of them were like jazz records. There was some classical things, but there was some Benny Goodman quartet things, a couple of Count Basie records, and I just loved the sound and the feel of that music very early on, even before I thought about guitar. Uh, some years later, I got interested in the guitar by watching this this American television show that was on for a number of seasons. It was actually a country-based show called Yeehaw. Yeah, right. <laughs> I know if you 
I've, I've, ne- I've never heard of that one myself. It was, yeah, mostly Americans know about it. It was a bunch of Nashville type of players. It was a lot of corny country humor, but some great musicians and singers. Uh, and the hosts were, were a guy named Buck Rogers, who's more of just a strummer and singer, and Roy Clark, who played beautiful melodic, you know, it was the first time mm. I saw a guitar player playing you know, the lines and stuff. Even it was in the country context, it interested me in the guitar. And I was, and about the same time, um, a, uh, a relative of mine had left a couple of old instruments in the house. One of them was a four-string guitar, called tenor guitar, and one of them was a four-string banjo. And I was drawn to the guitar at first, and I started trying to fill with it, try to get it, figure out how to tune it and pick out some melodies. And eventually, my parents took me to a local music store. There was an old guy there who was a retired, you know, like dance band musician. He played a lot of instruments, but he was mostly a banjo player, a four-string banjo player. He said, I'll show you how to tune this. And he tuned it up in fifths, like a viola, or like a mandolin, a fifth down, and started teaching how to read music right away and how to play tunes. Um, Every week, he'd teach me a couple of tunes and have me work through some of the uh, Mel Bay tenor banjo method and after a month or so i said by the way i've got a banjo at home too oh you should bring that in next time so before i knew it i was playing the four string tenor banjo but learning how to play melodies tunes chord melodies and uh, all on like standard classic tunes that people are the people i'm still playing that kind of music in jazz today because it's like the foundation of a lot of the jazz uh, repertoire uh, okay, fast forward for, to a, a couple of three years later, I was involved in playing in a little a banjo band in Southern California. I met one of the guys who was older than me, who was just there playing a four-string banjo tuned like a guitar. And we became friends. I found out I was a guitar player. I was at his house one day. Again, I'm like 12, 13 years old. I'm crawling around the floor looking at the records and picking out the musicians I knew about. Count Basie, Benny Goodman, Duke Ellington. And he said, Howard. I'm, sh- I'm surprised you're not looking at my jazz guitar records. I said, what's jazz guitar? <laughs> wow. <laughs> and then your life was changed forever. <laughs> it was, because in one afternoon he said, well, look, here's this is the first electric jazz guitar player, Charlie Christian. Look, he's played with many good men. He, made, he died very young, blah, blah. It was one of the Columbia collections of Charlie Christian things. And I was like, wow, this is great. And then he said, now this is Bernie Kessel. He started playing very much in the style, Charlie, et cetera, but played me a few of those records. I said, this is Tal Farley. I had really long fingers, and he played, you know. <laughs> you know and this is Jagger Reinhardt. Look, he only has two fingers. Yeah. So he, he exposed me to all the major jazz guitar players in like a wow. couple of days. And I went nuts with my cassette recorder taping all these things. Uh, and uh, I said, oh, this is Kenny Burrell. He's really cool. He had a Kenny Burrell trio record. And he said, this is a George Van Epps. He plays a seven-string guitar. He's got, you know, listen to all the chords he's playing. He's not so jazzy, but he plays these beautiful harmonies. Wow. And, that, and that, so, that, that's kind of a bit of a prophecy, isn't it? Because uh, you actually ended up recording quite a few albums with George Van Epps uh, much later on. Amazingly, yes. Yeah. So I just soaked up all this stuff as much as possible, got a six-string guitar, and was trying to learn how to play it just by ear and the chords I could learn and listening to records. Meantime, I was still, I was playing the banjo professionally. I was playing in like pizza parlors and shopping malls and stuff like that. And also trying to improvise a little bit on the banjo, finding little runs on a G7th chord and fills and varying the phrase. And eventually working the guitar into my uh, 
act, so to speak. And uh, about this time, um, one of the banjo players that I was playing with knew of my interest in guitar, and he always heard me talking about Barney Kessel, how much I loved him. He says, oh, there's an ad in the musician's paper. I'll call him up and see if I can get lessons for you with him. Wow. I said, yeah. Well, he called up Barney, and Barney was starting to travel at that time, so he couldn't take any students on. But he recommended a guy named Jimmy Weibel. He said he should go to my friend Jimmy Weibel. I, I didn't know who he was, but I said, well, Barney recommends him. He must be good. And Jimmy, do you know who Jimmy Weibel is or uh, was? Uh, I, I regret that, I, that I'm not aware of who he is, no. Well, yeah, a lot of people aren't, but he was... He started out playing like Western Swing in the 40s with people like Spade Cooley and Bob Wills. He moved to L.A. in the 1950s and got more into playing jazz and stuff. And he actually played with Red Norvo for about eight years after Charles Farlow left. Played with people like Benny Goodman and stuff. And eventually settled down in Los Angeles doing a lot of studio work and then teaching. Um, brilliant guitar player, real soft-spoken gentleman. And he also, you'll be interested as a, since your classical background because he starts in addition to playing like the single note lines, the jazz type of stuff and chords, he started getting fascinated with playing these little contramental puddle things on the guitar, like improvising with two lines at the same time and wrote some beautiful etudes right. for guitar. Yeah, we, so, we, 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 I was looking at a few videos of workshops you've done over the years, Howard, on, on YouTube that I found, and I, I, I've noticed you mentioned um, kind of th thinking of chords in terms of individual voices rather than just grips and kind of making lines move within the chords I, I thought it was was a really neat neat way of exploring that side of playing you know oh good yeah well that well that came from jimmy i mean he's he really emphasized that right away when he started he, you know i thought i was going to go to barney castle to learn some hard swing and guitar stuff but he had me learn all kinds of subtle little ways of getting inside the music and developed help really develop my both left and right hand technique i never started out on classical guitar, it was Jimmy that just said, here, just take your fingers and hit the notes here, this is P-M, P-I-M-A, mm -hmm. and uh, wonder wonderful stuff. Anyhow, through Jimmy, a couple of years later, I mentioned that I'd seen uh, an ad for a Howard Roberts guitar seminar, he was just doing seminars at the time, and, and Jimmy says, oh, you should definitely go to him, he's a good friend of mine, it's brilliant, he'll, he'll blow your mind, he's a great teacher and stuff. And I did. I went to this three-day thing at a music store in L.A., and Howard was so articulate and had a way of just cutting through all the nonsense and giving you really small, useful bits of information. So uh, that's where I met Howard and became exposed to his his teaching and his understanding of the guitar, and particularly jazz, but just in all fields. It's, it's, in, it's interesting you say that about Howard because I... I find that's that's one of the challenges uh, that a lot of jazz guitarists face that they kind of email me about is is trying to cut through the noise. It seems like with jazz guitar you can go in so many directions and and there's there's almost like an information overload. You you know, so it's hard to know where to start sometimes. It, it is, you know. I barely, I barely, I still barely know where to start or where to end, but. Uh, it was <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you're doing pretty well, man. <laughs> yeah, there's so much material out there, and all of it's good, but you know you can get distracted in trying to cover everything. And Howard was just very articulate, and um, yeah, just a great teacher. I wound up through his workshop. Then he had a few like small group workshops for about a year or so, and then that evolved into guitar school, which originally was known as the Guitar Institute of Technology, and then 
became Musicians Institute with a lot of other instruments as well. But uh, so, and during this time, again, I'm just playing with musicians around Southern California, Los Angeles, and listening to as many people as possible, and um, transcri- you know, doing all the things that you do when you're learning, transcribing solos, working on chord melodies, you know, learning learning about harmony and how it relates to the tunes you're playing, and ways to uh, manipulate it and get in inside and outside it. But one of the major things that was a huge break for me, though, is in about 1979, I got a call from Red Norvo. Red Norvo was a, a very famous jazz vibraphone player, dated back to the swing era or even before I had his own band. He recorded the likes of Charlie Parker in like 1944 and had a famous trio in the 50s which featured Tau Falo, just guitar vibes and bass. Very facile, light like swinging chamber music type of thing. And uh, he was, at the time he called me, he, he, I got this call at the Guitar Institute of Technology where I was teaching at that time. And I said, Howard, this is Red Norvo. And you got, you know, I need a guitar player for the summer in Atlantic City, you know. Well, the trio, it'll be a trio, it'll be seven weeks, blah, 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 blah. And I was thrilled because this is like one of the guys that was just a, a uh, legendary name on the records to me. So... I flew from Southern California out to Atlantic City, New Jersey, which they just opened gambling casinos there. It was in a state of like boomtown. You know, there was one casino where we were playing, and they were building all the others. And uh, started learning. And I thought, again, he was a, an older, seasoned musician. Seemed, you know, seemed at first he seemed like just a kindly old man, and eventually seemed like a really crotchety, mean person. But. <laughs> because he had very high standards. You know, I got out there and I thought it was a top guitar player from Southern California. We start playing the first tune, and we were actually playing in a dining room. It wasn't like a showroom or anything. It was almost background music, but I'm playing, and I'm playing, and he's kind of looking at me and then looking at the bass player and then kind of rolling his eyes, sighing, <laughs> you know, and I'm thinking, and then, and then later on, he had told me when the bass player plays a solo, to play a rhythm guitar. So I'm going, dum, 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 moving around on the chords. Everyone, I think I'm playing this real cool rhythm guitar. And then again, he kind of looks at me and takes four mouths on the vibes and imitates me. He goes, dum, 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 like showing me how. You know, <laughs> wow. It sounds, and, sounds, but, like, sounds like a bit of a whiplash moment. I don't know if you've seen that movie. You know, I was just trying to look it up the other night. I haven't seen it yet. But anyhow, it was, it was sort of like that. Not quite as nasty, but still, it was a lot of pressure because I'm all excited to be working with this legendary guy. And he's just kind of looking at me like, oh, what have I done? You know, I've gotten this kid here. But then I started talking to him and just trying. I said, what, what's wrong? What, what, when you're, when you're, playing, you're, playing, you're just playing endless lines and you're not taking a breath. And it's just like... And, going on and when you play a rhythm it's still you know when you're playing rhythm it's supposed to be time it's not supposed to be movement you know it just gave me a couple of suggestions and i said well good i'm you know please tell me and uh, eventually he kind of warmed up and gave me a lot of great suggestions and i improved a lot of things and just really learned very quickly it kind of put together the last 10 years of learning in a matter of three weeks really helped put it together and make and make the right decisions as far as performing <clears throat> definitely so, having having an uh, expert 
opinion can, can save yeah. you a lot of time in the long run, can't it? Exactly. You know, I mean, whereas a lot of people was, hey, it sounds great. Yeah, man, great. Keep blowing. Yeah, solid, you know. But he was very, very critical because he had very high standards for his own playing, too. That's one of the things that was known about him his whole life. So it, it was like the four, the three, three and a half months, I, I think it was about three months I was out there. It was just a, a total education and really lessons that I couldn't have learned anywhere else or couldn't have learned from a teacher in a school. It was really, really wonderful. Wow. And, Oh, amazing. So, um, uh, yeah, and I've just noticed, like, because I've listened to a lot of your albums recently, Howard, and and something that seems to be a strong focus in your playing is definitely that that swing era style. You, you know, and I think that that's that's made it made you very distinctive from a lot of the other players that are still around today that that are playing is is the focus on swing music. Uh, well, why did you stick with that style and kind of really specialize in that compared to say moving to the more modern Pat Metheny kind of style, style universe that 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 a lot of us are accustomed to these days. Well, it's funny. I mean, I I started hearing that music. I was always interested in a lot of different kind of music over the years though, and naturally spent time listening to people from the John Coltrane era and Ornette Coleman and various guitar players, but basically that, that style of music just appealed to me the most. And also when I moved to New York in 19, when did I move there? 1983, yeah, 82, 83, I found that not only were there were a lot of the old timers that, again, were just names on records to me, but people that dated back to the formative years of jazz and swing, but there were a lot of young guys playing and playing really well, playing in that style too. It was almost kind of um, not a not a revolution, but just a, an alternative to the guys that were playing at that time. And I just kind of got immersed in that, both with the older players and younger players, and it just kind of wound up. I did a lot of that over the years, and I found it very satisfying. I, mm. I found a couple of players who were also kind of semi well, one of them was definitely a mentor to me, a guy named Ruby Braff, who was a trumpet player, brilliant lyrical trump, trumpet player whose style transcended. It wasn't really traditional. It wasn't really a bebop. It wasn't really modern, but it just incorporated the best aspects of all those different styles. Uh, so those are the type of players I've always tried to emulate or tried to be in that fashion, not be locked so much into a particular style. I mean, when I go out and play... I may play a music that is associated with more swing style, but I don't try to wear an old suit and a fedora, you know. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So a lot of people do, and that's fine too. So that's just that's just the music that's spoken out to me the most over the years. I like I like a lot of different things. It's great. It's great music. I, I really love the just the the rhythmic drive, and it's got a lot of life in that style. You you know you can. You just can't. You just can't stop listening to it and tapping your foot along. You know, it's it's really great. Yeah. Let's let's move on because one of the things I wanted to talk to you about today, Howard, was, uh, you know, uh, from the the jazz guitarists trying to improve themselves. You know, trying to um, get better, but but might be kind of walking in the wilderness a bit. So so I, I hope you can kind of give some advice to us uh, to to kind of sort out the wheat from the chaff sort of thing when it comes to your own practice you know so i thought i thought i'd kick off a few questions like that now you know uh because you know you are one of the most highly acclaimed jazz guitarists 
of, of the present day. Like, <laughs> uh, uh, so, you know, what, what made you exceptional? Yeah, what, what do you think? You, you've kind of hinted at that before, you know, like associating with great players in the style you wanted to really excel in, you know, but, but were there any other kind of factors that, that you think differentiated yourself um, co- uh, compared to others? Well, one thing, and again, this, this, this was true years ago and it's still true today, I've, I've always been interested in learning a lot of tunes and or you might call them heads if you're playing like a bebop line or a more modern tune or something. But and and again, this is relates to to a work situation too because I find myself performing. I always want to know the tunes I'm playing and not be looking at music on the bandstand. Or if I have to, the one time if I go back and play with those same people the next time, I don't want to have it there. And I think that's something that's neglected a lot of times these days in players, both professionals and people learning is really internalizing a repertoire that you can grow and build with and develop. You know, I mean, again, the the tunes from the 20s, 30s, and 40s which formed the basic vocabulary of most what you call swing, bebop, harmony, and stuff. Those really teach you everything you need to know about music. If you play a tune and really understand it, know what extension the melody is, how the bass line relates to the melody, um... The more the more I play, I go back and say, "Oh, this is amazing! This tune is all built off of thirteenths, but it it sounds so natural." Or, or this tune is nothing but a major scale, but the chords make it sound like this incredibly complex tune. You know, mm. so that's something I think is neglected a lot: is people really developing a repertoire and really internalizing it, not just opening the fake book or opening the iPad. You know, but really understanding it. And, and that's and and I've as a, I played a, for many years as a sideman with a lot of different players, and all those guys had slightly different repertoires. But I made it a point to really know those tunes, and be able to find a counterpoint within it, know the harmony, know the bass line, etc. How, so how, how do you go about memorizing a tune? Let, let's say that you're doing a gig tonight, and there was a new chart that you've never seen there before. Like, what would be your next steps to? to um, internalizing that tune? Well, first, I've always been a more of a harmony-based guy. I've always tried, I've always been good at picking up harmonies and stuff, but I would go through and just analyze first the form of the tune, whether it's just an old AABA tune or ABCD tune, or if it's got like a longer form, and understand just the rhythmic form of it first and the harmony and the chords, just try to internalize the pr- progression, see if it's based on another tune, but that's just one funny chord somewhere, or if it goes like a slightly different direction. And then just, if possible, then start trying to memorize the melody as soon as possible. And if I always try to get it off of the paper as soon as possible. And if I, if I look at a page a few times, I try to close the book and play it from memory immediately. So I start to make it a habit of it, rather mm-hmm. than always look at the paper, even just as a, as a safety net or whatever. Uh, because most most people, I, and again, over the years, I have st- standard students come in here and say, "When do you want to play?" I say, "Well, I'll play uh, alone together." Great. And I said, "Let me get the book out." I says, "No, you don't need a book." <laughs> well, I've never played it without the book. Well, try, and really, uh, invariably, they can get it after a, a couple of tries. 
but never do that. And then once you really know it, you can, you'll find yourself playing much more musically and able to find more variations and more possibilities in that tune rather than just always the book to the eye, to the fingers, to the guitar. Yeah, it kind of bypasses the ears maybe. Exactly. So uh, that's what I usually try to do. And then the one thing, and again, this may seem like a very simple thing to do, but anytime I learn a new turn, I play, try to play it for someone else as soon as possible because I can sit here in my room by myself and just be wailing and say, oh, yeah, I've got it, great. I go out and say, hey, and like go out to play for my wife. Let me play this new tune I learned. Da, 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 da. Uh, you know, it's amazing how your memory fails with, with even one other person in the room. Mm, mm. So you just force yourself to, in the situations where you're performing all the time, and it raises your standards and your the quality of your playing. I think. Well, wow, they're, they're they're absolute gems. Those two tips, and uh, I think it's overlooked by a lot of people. You know, the. Because both the things is that I can see a lot of people right now kind of sit, sitting with the real book in their room, not playing to anyone I, I, else. <laughs> well, I, I, I don't mean that as a as an offense, but it's just something to, to think about, you know. And Definitely. It's good to have a real book to look up something every once in a while, but try to get off of it as soon as possible. That includes, I don't know, uh, even, I, of course... We have so, again, you talked about the, the amount of material available and structural material. We have so many other aids. We have the iReal book that we can put in any key and play a backing track for yourself and transpose it. So I say, let's play uh, Honeysuckle Rose. Oh, yeah. And the singer wants to do it in C. Oh, wait. You know. All right. Yep. It's a simple chord progression. It's 32 bars, but it's only eight bars repeated three times plus a bridge. Mm. So... I think it's time for everybody to engage their minds and ears a little more. Just well, what do you what do you what do you think of those kind of those backing? I know a lot of a lot of people use them. Like a lot of my students use them as well. Like uh, kind of those backing track generators. Do you think they're a useful tool, or, or are they actually an obstacle? No, I think they are a useful tool. It's really good. I kind of turned up my nose at them for the first couple of years when I became aware of them, and then I was on a gig with a friend down in Georgia a couple of years ago. And he's a not a full-time guitar player, but and he's I said, here. I got the set list here, and here's uh, well, this tune. And I said, well, can I edit this? I found out you could edit the changes and customize them, and make them good. And I, they are a valuable tool for a lot of situations. And I I found I finally got it. And then I when I was trying to learn a new tune, I would put on a backy track and play to it for a while, get comfortable with the changes. Mm. So I, I think it is a very useful thing, but. It, it can be misused at a point too, or somehow use it sparingly. Sure, sure. Because uh, if it, you want to be able to build up your own internal sense of rhythm too, once you're comfortable with the changes and can play to a backing track and play some solos, play a melody or whatever, turn it off and see if you can play with that same rhythmic intensity by yourself. Even just single notes. If you can do that and keep the keep something swinging with just single notes by yourself, then you're starting to really make music for someone. Uh, right. Not not even with a metronome or anything like that. Just 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 with the guitar, you know. Yeah. Wow. Just and um, just try to intersperse it, alternate it, or something. You know, the metronome is a very valuable tool. I've spent plenty of time with that myself too. But it's good to 
make sure that you can have that built into your own system too after a while. Okay, well, that that, that leads in nicely to um, something else I've been thinking about asking you is, uh, you know, what what do you think are the most important elements that jazz guitarists should do, aspiring jazz guitarists should do in their practice session? You, um, you, you know, what what are what what are the things say you do, and and what do you recommend that your students do to to get the and what have you found gets the most results for people? Well, again, I've all years ago I got in the habit of trying to play enough, just exer- exercise enough of the basic techniques you're using, whether it's single notes or chords or even bass lines. I try to spend some time playing accurately single note things, whether it's playing through a box solo violin prelude or just playing through a tune with playing eighth note lines or something like that and just focusing on the, the technique. And I try since I play a lot of chordal type of things, I always like to try to play through some tunes with various forms of chord melody, uh, whether it's small, just three-note chords, or whether it's a big, lush arrangement. So I just try to do enough of that to keep it comfortable and keep it working. Uh, but, th- again, I'm going to sound, sound like a broken wreck here, but just learning tunes, building up repertoire, and spending time playing, and then listening. Listening to because you can't you can't just say I'm going to improvise over this tune. I'm going to play you know, G melodic minor. Then I'm going to play you know D harmonic minor or pentatonic. You have to have some kind of vocabulary of phrases built up. And listening to the examples, all the great players that have been before us will teach you a lot. And you'll see different players use the same vocabulary in slightly different ways. But uh, listening is very important. It's interesting you mentioned that that about the phrases as well. You know, like le- learning actual phrases. I've, I've I've heard actually a couple of different opinions on that. Some some people are very anti learning, you know, lines and phrases, and some people are very pro. Like like you you kind of see this very polarized argument about yeah. that. So so the, I find them myself. It's very valuable to learn learn lines and kind of work with them in your in your playing. Would you agree, or or do you think it can go too far? No, I think it's important to learn learn lines, and I think it's important to learn how to play transcriptions of entire solos, whether it's a chorus or eight choruses. But then take that apart and dissect it. Pick out little phrases. Even if, if you have a, a line that goes on for six bars, take it apart to see what's really going on. Take one of those phrases. If it's a minor seventh, try to play a major seventh or diminished. Just re- Just constantly be analyzing and then internalizing parts of these phrases where you can put them together in your own way. That's that's kind of my feelings. I mean, sometimes even I'll, I'll go, uh, just for amusement, I might have heard a Django Reinhardt record. I like the solo. I listen to it. I might transcribe it. Say, oh, I wonder if he played this in major instead of minor. Or maybe we can superimpose this over a different... It's just, it's just playing with things, taking taking things apart and reassembling them. Oh, so, 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 you say, so what you're saying here is like, t- take, say, a phrase that's that's over a minor seven chord like that that works with that that you found in transcription but then just experimenting with it and applying it to to other chordal situations is that absolutely you try to put it on a different step of the scale try to put it in major minor diminished whole tone mm-hmm. uh, different yeah just experiment with the relationships and, and see what's really going on there and what makes it special in that one situation sure sure 
Does that make sense at all? Beg your pardon, sorry? If that makes any sense at all. Oh, it does indeed. Yeah, no, that's, um, so it's, it's kind of like, like being a scientist, isn't it? Just, just kind of testing things out. Sure. Testing things out, taking things apart, putting them back together, you know, making them come alive. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. So, so you, we were just talking about transcriptions, you know, what, in terms of players that have, that have most influenced you in, in your own development of vocabulary and, and style, like who, like you mentioned a few people like Benny Goodman and, and, uh, and Count Basie and guys like that early on, were there, were there any others that, that, that you really studied very hard and looked at their, look at their solos carefully? Yeah, there were, there's been a few people. Again, again, naturally, everybody's listened to and studied Charlie Parker a lot, and there's you can spend your whole life doing that. But it's it's always fascinating to see how he put together things. Django Reinhardt, again, I knew about him, you know, forty years ago, or whatever. But I still th- hear things in his in his solos. I'll come across a record I hadn't heard before and notice some interesting thing where he put things together in a different way. Um, a lot of saxophone players I was fascinated for a long time. Also, uh, I remember a long time ago I got, I got on a Wardell Gray kick. He was a tenor saxophone player in the 40s and 50s. He was kind of halfway between the swing and bebop era, a little bit of both styles involved. Um, for a long time, too, I got very interested in Lenny Tristano and his group of disciples, uh, Lee Konitz. Uh, those guys, and I transcribed some of their solos just because I found it interesting the way they put long lines together and what they were doing. So really, just whatever whatever interests you. you know, but those are those are a few key players that I really studied a lot. Yeah, sure. I, I also wrote down I wrote down a few of the right hand lines from several Bill Evans records at one point too. So. It's, so much so much out there <laughs> there is <laughs> yeah uh it's uh it's hard to know where to start sometimes you just hear 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 it especially like because you you can like sign up to like itunes music or youtube music or whatever and you can just you could listen to jazz for the rest of your life 24 hours a day if you wanted to <laughs> you can so i think the key to again what you mentioned earlier whatever cutting out the chaff or weeding through the chaff i forget how you put it but <laughs> Find, pick tunes that you like. Don't don't do tunes that you're told you're supposed to do. If something appeals to you, do it. And but but again, start building up your own repertoire. Make a list of things as you go on, and be sure to go back and revisit them every once in a while. Because you can keep trying to go through much, so much stuff, and you'll never get back to the first tune you started with. Or sometimes you find going back to stuff you've already done. You'll a few months later, you'll find an, a fresher approach to it, or all of a sudden it'll make more sense to you. Mm, it's, mm. Just, it's just an endless learning process yeah sure so do is it's interesting you say that like because it sounds like like you've been very self-motivated as a player to to develop that uh do, do you think that jazz is largely kind of something that someone does like almost self-taught or, or is it or is it more something that that requires formal teaching. What, what, what do you think about kind of the aspect of formal teaching in jazz compared to, you know, figuring it out for yourself? Well, I think there's a good. There's definitely a place for it, but it, it needs to be a half, maybe half and half. I mean, the people that really want to play are going to go after it because they love it and they're it's their passion, and uh, certain usually not for financial rewards. 
yeah. <laughs> but just because they love it so much. But a formal teaching can give you the tools to make it make yourself teaching easier too. I mean, I've been playing professionally both on the banjo and the guitar for a few years and playing a lot of things intuitively and stuff. I knew that G7th usually went to C and C7th usually went to F, but I didn't know what a 2-5 was, 2-5-1 was until I went to Howard Roberts' first seminar. And that all of a sudden, oh, yeah, so that's what that is. Well, then if I can do that here, I can do it here too. And so that I think the formal formal education or the, the opportunities out there are very important and they're very useful. Mm. Uh, so why don't we talk about someone's like just hypothetically a student starting from scratch you know like let, let's let's say you had someone come into your studio today and you're teaching them like what 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 do you think w- would be the logical progression like for someone just starting out well i'd find find a tune that they wanted to play to start out with harmony and start out with the basics of i don't know what we call Jazz or dance band harmony, you know the, the two five ones, the one six two five. Start understanding how chord progressions are formed and how and get a sense of the form, and um, maybe give them a, a, some of the tools on a simple progression to start trying to improvise some melodies. You know, again, you mentioned your classical background. I can't tell you how many really phenomenal classical guitar players I've said. Well, just play something over D minor. Oh, no, <laughs> you know, or they might play a beautiful arrangement of maybe even of a popular tune. I said, that's great. Now, can you just play the melody by itself? Well, no, I've never done that. Wow. I, mean, just, I mean, so these are just simple things that I usually try to get people to do just so they can free themselves up so they're not locked into uh, just a set set piece hmm. and start just seeing how the music works and how they can take it upon themselves and, and do things with it there. All the other tools, whether just you know, scales, chord progressions and stuff, again, very important, but you don't have to know every variation of, of a different scale in order to play guitar or jazz guitar, but you just gradually add it in. Sure. Do, do do you think of uh, like there's there's a very there's kind of the modal school of of improvisation. You know, like thinking in terms of Dorian mode, Mixolydian mode, and and those sort of things. Like how how do you approach improvisation like that? Well, we've talked about you know lines and phrases and things like that. But um, are there any kind of other frameworks that that you think about when you're improvising? I do. I mean, uh, the, the modal approach or just understanding the different modes inherent in a key progression, like in, in for, for instance, the first eight bars of all the things you are is basically all based off of an A-flat scale. It's like a, a six, two, five, one, four, and then you light up and see eventually. Now, that was a big revelation when I learned that. And they said, well, so you can just play A-flat a over that. Well, that's good, but then, then your line sounds all like A-flat. Yeah. So I... It's, I try to get people to, to really focus more on the harmony and understanding where the important fence posts are along the way. You've got F minor, you've got B flat minor, E flat seventh, and try to get them to, to know where the thirds of the chords are in that progression because that defines the, the sound of the chord 
and that's an important note that will make it stand out if you refer to that every once in a while. It'll sound like all the things you are instead of a flat modal. Yeah, you know. sure. <laughs> uh, so that's, that's all. I, again, I maybe maybe that's because I started that way, too, because I started just playing tunes where I just went for chord to chord, but I, I try to hit the important notes in those chords, and eventually you realize they're the thirds and the sevenths, mm. and knowing where the root is. Sure. You know, one one thing that I like to do, too, is just to play only the melody and the bass notes of the chord progression as it goes along. All right, because okay. Because that, that, and again, as a classical guitar player, you can do that finger style, you can do it style. But even a pick style guitar, if they just hit the melody note and know exactly where the bass note is, and you see how it relates, whether it's the third of the chord, whether it's the seventh, whether it's some other note, and you, it gives you a framework of, of the progression of the tune and also gives you the facility to know where those notes are on the guitar and to be able to hold one down and hit another note with another finger. Kind of, kind of like, like the skeleton of a chord melody arrangement as well, isn't it? Exactly. It's exactly what it is. You add, you add one other note to that, and you've got a whole string trio or string quartet. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, so it's, a lot, it's a lot simpler than, than people make. It, it can be a lot simpler than people make it out to be sometimes, isn't it? It, it, it can be, yeah. yeah. Chord melody, oh, I, I haven't done any chord melodies. You know, I have to, you know, it's just the bass note and the melody note, and find another note in between somewhere yep <laughs> that's that's <laughs> it pretty much so um yeah uh, this is great I'm, I'm i'm having such a good time talking to you howard um uh, yeah let, let's keep going man so so uh, hey. let, let's now talk about you know some of the i think we've kind of alluded to this before but but you know like i actually kind of like talks like this where we do re- reiterate points from time to time because it because it kind of helps <laughs> hammer them in you know but but you know the the what's what's perhaps the biggest mistakes and myths you see when it comes to learning jazz guitar and and the biggest wastes of time what, what do you see people doing like like your students but they're, they're doing a lot of work but they're not they're not really getting a lot of benefit for it. Do you do you notice anything like that? Well, yeah. Um, one of them is spending too much time, and again, learning scales and learning the figure board is important, but spending too much time on just me- mechanically going through scales rather than relating to them, relating to a framework of a tune or a chord progression. And uh, let's see. Well, that's about the only one. <laughs> no. Yeah, right. Uh, maybe the the other one would be if you're interested in playing chord melody or harm, harm, chordal style guitar, learning too many arrangements by rote, you know, like whether it's a transcription of a Joe Pass solo or whatever, and not enough time just understanding the tune so you can put the, put that together on the spot if you want mm, to. Mm. Uh, be able to because again, I've seen many people sit down and start to play. Oh, let me see. Let me play this beautiful arrangement of autumn leaves or whatever. So you're learning the tune as a set of of moves, rather than hearing the melody and know where it goes, knowing the bass line. You can put everything else together yourself. Mm. Yeah, so I think I've I've noticed that from when I was doing more classical style music is it actually can induce a lot of tension into people's 
playing, I find, because they're, they're freaking out about forgetting it or or letting their fingers slip or whatever. Like, um, I've, I've found that myself, like, studying jazz now. It's, it's, it's helped me feel a lot more secure even when I'm doing a pre-done arrangement if I'm playing at a wedding or whatever like that because cause you kind of know how the piece works a bit more. Yes, of course. You, you understand the harmony if you forget a couple of beautiful moves that you may have practiced but can't reach on time. Keep the melody going, nobody will notice a thing. Grab a bass note or slide one fret one way or the other and you'll be okay. <laughs> yep. So, uh, yeah, and um, uh, let, let's keep talking about kind of learning jazz guitar. I, th- I think I think people are going to find this conversation really interesting here. So, um, you know, because a lot of a lot of my audience, right, that they they're in a position where perhaps they they um, can't afford, uh, you know, formal teaching, or, or maybe there's no one in their area that that can provide them lessons um, uh, to to kind of get them started. So, you know, what if if say someone had to teach themselves, like what 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 would be some of the kind of instruction books that you know about or DVDs or, or websites or other things that that you think people should focus on? There's so much stuff. Um, Howard Roberts put together shortly before he passed away like a three-volume, what's it called, guitar compendium published by Advanced Music in, in Europe. And it's a, it's a really amazing resource you can just go to and look up different things. And it's not necessarily a method from page one to the end. But you just go up and look at the topic and look what he's got to say and look at some examples. That's a really good resource. I have to plug that just because I think it's a wonderful contribution. I hope I hope it's still available. should be. I'm sure um, people could find it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Howard Roberts' Guitar Compendium, Volume 1, 2, and 3. And I also just have to plug, especially for more advanced or even just any guitar players interested in chordal playing, George Van Epps, even though he's known as a seven-string player, he, in the early 60s he published a little booklet folio of six original solos for guitar, for six-string guitar. Uh, especially for classical guitar players, they're looking to develop some interesting things because they're fingered the old way, just with the string numbers and the mm-hmm. and stuff. Every one of those is just a beautiful little piece, and every couple of bars, too, if you want to take the time to analyze it, you'll find some beautiful harmonic movements or little chordal movements that you can use in a lot of different other places. And this was republished by Mel Bay some years ago. I think it's still available. It's just called The George Van Epps Solos, right. published by Mel That's that's a great, I even go back to those every once in a while. I've known them for years, but I still go back just to tune into them and develop my technique. You can play them finger style or pick style if you want. It's just a, a wonderful little set of pieces that everybody in the chordal guitar playing should should have a copy of that. Wow. Oh, no, I'm, I'm, I haven't seen that one myself, so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, as soon as we get off the call, I'm going to check that one out. Oh, yeah, so that, but, oh sorry. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> What am I thinking? I have to be plugging my own stuff. No, I, uh, <laughs> Mel Bay uh, published a, a book of all the guitar solos from Sweet and Lowdown. The oh, Woody cool. And they're, and they're accurate because I transcribed them myself and made sure the, the fingering the tab was okay. So if you're looking for just some nice swing, Django-esque style guitar solos, I think it's a good book. Oh, <laughs> definitely. Still in print, and I think it's available electronically now. 
Oh, fantastic. So, yeah, um, uh, transcribed solos from Sweet Lowdown. Yeah, uh, Sweet and Lowdown from the guitar work. Um, I think the, the title of the book is just Howard Alden's Sweet and Lowdown. But... Oh, excellent. Oh, well, well there, there's, there's a bonus. I'll, I'll, I'm definitely checking that one out as well. So, so it's uh, solo guitar um, transcriptions. Well, it's it's like the single note because a lot of the music was with rhythm guitar and bass and clarinet. It's just my guitar solos, most of the single note, and a couple of solo guitar pieces that were used to move. One actually, one that wasn't actually used but was recorded, and a lot of the music also you only heard eight or nine, you know, eight or a chorus in the movie, but you'll get like three choruses of guitar stuff <laughs> oh fantastic oh no, that sounds like a wonderful resource so i'll, I'll put um i'll put that in the uh show notes for for the interview for today on my website and and people oh, yeah. can um uh can find out more about that so let's talk about teaching now howard so uh you do, do you so you you teach a, f- a fair bit yourself do you um from from a studio no well actually most of most of my teaching these days is via skype I moved from New York to Arizona almost two years ago. When I was in New York City, of course, a lot of people would be coming through town and want a, a lesson or something, or I had a handful of private students. But uh, I've had just a couple of in-person private students here. And I basically, when I travel, I usually do some clinics or workshops for colleges or whatever a group of guitar players want to get together. How, how, do you, how do you find teaching by Skype? I do a fair bit of that myself these days. It's working a lot better than I ever thought it would be. Actually, you know, it's it's occasionally we get a little hang up with the with the um, whatever um, gets interrupted or gets freezes every once in a while. But it works very well. It's it's amazing how once you just start in the the screen and the medium disappears and it's, you know it's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. it's it's just like yeah, you can you can nearly do do everything unfortunately except play with the other person in real time but but you, you, everything else is um is is pretty straightforward isn't it yeah it really is i mean the first time i tried it a few years ago a guy had emailed me wanted some lessons i said well I could try by skype and eventually got a computer got set up and we're halfway through the lesson i say where are you by the way oh i'm in indonesia i had no idea you know i thought he was somewhere <laughs> It's crazy, isn't it? It's, uh, it's four in the morning here, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> wow, yeah, it's uh, we live in amazing times, that's for sure. So, um, uh, how do you, how do you think you know uh, we as teachers? You know, I'm, I'm speaking to us teachers generally out there that might be listening right now. How, how can we help um, our students become become better? Well, what what advice would you give there, Howard? Hmm. Well. Again, again, and I'm always trying to refine my teaching or make it more, more accurate, more useful. I don't know. We the the main thing is I just always try to communicate useful ideas that people can use right away and not get them bogged down in just busy work just to keep busy. And that's something I've learned also from doing workshops on the road for a number of years is. When you have a group of ten players, even five players, the ability will be, a, a, you know, very much different—a wide span of ability. But I try to give ideas that'll be useful for everybody at their level, and things that they'll remember 
also with the aid of maybe a, a handout or something. But even without that, I just tr try to relate some of the ideas I've heard over the years that are helpful at at every level. Now, that's not to say you shouldn't tailor your teaching if you're doing a private lesson with someone. But uh, I just try to keep it, I don't know, useful, instantly <laughs> applicable. Well, yeah, a, a lot of the tips you've given today have very much been like that. You know, you know at, at any level, I think people would find a lot of this information really helpful. Yeah, and um, again, it, I guess it depends on where the student wants to go to, but I, I always try to focus toward performance and playing and, and playing music as, to, as, as opposed to busying yourself with exercises, pre preparatory exercises. Try to get right to the music as soon as possible. Okay, that's a call to action, everyone. Make sure you all get out there and start start doing some playing. <laughs> so start meeting up with musicians and, and start doing gigs or jam sessions or whatever, you know? Yeah, well, that, that's the other thing is, is um, you'll get more out of playing a half an hour with another musician than, you know, six hours playing by yourself at home, I think, because that's where everything comes into focus. And you really rise to the to the occasion so seek, seek seek out opportunities to play with anybody whether it's informally or at home or and these days with the way the uh professional situation is you have to you have to really go out of your way to create those opportunities whether you create a, a a weekly or bi-weekly club or a jam session or some friends you meet up to with to play with and that's the only way you'll get past just sit in your room playing with your ipad or whatever you know, just. it's such good advice you know like like if because a lot of people email me saying oh you know it's a shame i haven't got a community uh you know where i live of jazz players but you know create one <laughs> you know that i'm sure there's you only need one other person and you and you and you have a jam session you know another person and if teach them take them some take them a couple of tunes take them some chord sheets you know just start building up building up a community you know create your own if you have to and that's I mean that's that's one thing even most people that will go out to the jam sessions you'll find yourself playing a lot of the same tunes over and over but if you want to play a different tune you have to have the music ready and you have to force you have to almost force it upon people so let's play this you know what we see by Thelonious Monk Oh well, we were going to play all the things you are, and I've got rhythm and blue bossa. But you have to, if you really want to play something, you have to really force it upon other players. That's also on a professional level too. People will fall into the same thing of playing the same sixteen tunes over and over again. And I've been, I've always been one who's sought obscurity as far as repertoire. I tend to find a lot of obscure tunes that nobody knows, but that's just me personally. But that, that's that's great advice. So yeah, you kind of got to put it out there a bit if if you if you want to do something different. Mm -hmm. Wow. Uh, okay. Great. So um, uh, this the, I think I think that last those last points you were making, Howard, about about people you know creating opportunities, playing with other people. You know that that's it's such a fast way to get better. But um, it's it's something a lot of people are kind of intimidated by, I guess. So so they've just got to kind of summon up the courage and and put their playing mm -hmm. out there. Absolutely. 
Okay. So, um, oh, well, th- this has been a fantastic conversation, Howard. I, I thought um, y- we could we could now play a couple of tracks off your uh, recent solo album called simply called Guitar. Um, and uh, this is um, we're now going to play just a gigolo and Diabinho Maluco. Did I say it right? <laughs> You did really good. If you're if you're Brazilian, say Giovinho Maluco. Pronounce the, the the D kind of like a G, but that's very good. Giovinho Maluco. Uh, yeah, yeah. So roughly. so a bit of a medley. Oh, sorry. Yeah, a bit of a medley. The Giovinho Maluco roughly translates as "tricky little devil," and uh, it is. It's a tricky little piece of music, but I enjoy playing it. Fantastic. All right. Well, let's 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 roll. Let's get it rolling and and have a listen. Thank you. 
Okay, so that was Howard Alden uh, playing Just a Gigolo and Giabinho Maluco from his fantastic solo album Guitar. So you can check that out by um, looking at the show notes for this episode and, and uh, you can uh, get the album from there if you click the links on the show notes. So um, yeah, uh, Howard, I just would like to really thank you for coming on and sharing your wisdom about jazz guitar playing today and to hear your story. It's, it's, it's been absolutely phenomenal to talk to, some, uh, to someone like yourself of your calibre um, in the jazz guitar scene and, and um, I think a lot of people out there that are uh, readers on my website are really going to benefit from the conversation we've had today. So, so thank you so much. My pleasure. I hope, I hope that people get some useful ideas from it. 
And uh, yeah, just um, if do you have any kind of final words of wisdom you could you could say to all the Fret Dojo readers out there? Well, I just want to re- reiterate what Howard Roberts was very focused on when he was teaching. I found it really useful when I was learning both technically the guitar and learning material. Uh, he was very focused on making the most use of your time. And if you're doing practicing as far technical things or a tune or a solo, practicing within time frames. Because there's a quote from an old American humorous book, which is really true, though, that the time required for a task to be accomplished expands to fill the time available. Oh, well. That roughly, roughly translated means if you've got, you know, 28 days to learn a tune, you'll learn in 28 days, and usually on the 27th and 28th days. If you've got 15 minutes to learn a tune, you'll learn it in 15 minutes. So I'm, I'm, I'm going off on a tangent here, forgive me. but No, not at all. So, so when you're practicing, set, set time limits. Say, I'm going to practice this, whatever, major 13th arpeggio for 15 minutes, and that's all. Instead of sitting and kind of going into the reverie and playing it over a guard and then kind of drifting off and doing it for you know, a couple of hours, and you can get it down within 15 minutes. And then do a 15 minutes on another topic that you need. This I found this really useful when trying to learn a lot of different things at the same time. Um, again, from your classical guitar experience too, I'm sure you had certain technical things you had to work on. If you practice something just for half an hour or 15 minutes and stopped and moved on to something else, you make a lot better use of the time. So that's that's one really useful thing I think, particularly for practicing for learning. Practice within time frames, and once you're done with that time, stop. Force yourself to stop. Next time you come back, you'll make even better use of that time. You'll get used to fitting in more things into a smaller amount of time. Oh, that is such good advice. Yeah, because time is a very precious resource these days with everyone getting so busy. So... um, Mm -hmm. Uh, excellent. Well, th- thank you so much, uh, Howard. Um, th- this has been Howard Alden uh, talking on Fret Dojo today about jazz guitar and uh, and his journey with jazz guitar. And, and it's um it's it's been fabulous having you on the show today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, that was awesome, wasn't it? I hope you enjoyed that interview with internationally acclaimed jazz guitarist Howard Alden. For all the show notes and the resources that Howard mentioned on the interview, including a link to his recently released solo album called Guitar, just head to fretdojo.com slash Alden, and Alden spelt A-L-D-E-N. And, you know, to find more out about Howard and his albums and his upcoming performances, just visit howardalden.com, and Howard Alden's all one word for that address. So before you go, a quick reminder about something pretty exciting. I'm actually about to open the doors to the next release of my online course. It's called The Fundamentals of Jazz Guitar Improvisation. This was very popular the last time I ran it, and uh, it was great working with all the students throughout the course that the last one recently wrapped up and uh, the students that went through it achieved really you know big improvements with their jazz guitar improvisation skills I was definitely a very happy tutor and uh, I think that 
you know, it's worth giving this course a shot if you're interested in improving your improvisation skills, because I'm sure you can get some great results as well. So, you know, to find out about the upcoming course, make sure that you're subscribed to my mailing list. And you can do that by entering your details on the homepage at fretdojo.com. And so I can let you know by email when I'm going to start taking bookings for the re-release of the Fundamentals of Jazz Guitar Improvisation course. Alrighty, thanks guys, and nice hanging out with you today, and I look forward to seeing you in another episode of Fret Dojo. Bye for now.